Let's try to clear my throat. Um, my name is, I have a long name, Francine Grace Penelope Patterson. Penny grew up in a family that moved around a lot. And as a kid, she was obsessed with wildlife. I was fascinated with animals, and they were in my window wells, and they were in the swamp that was nearby, and they were in the woods. The kind of wildlife that most people avoid. Oh, yeah, snakes, uh, lizards, you name it. I can remember bringing home a bat, and they weren't really pleased with that. I said, let let me take that from you. (laughs) Somebody reminded me of an alligator that lived in the bathtub. What? I don't know exactly how that happened. (laughs) How would you describe yourself as a kid? Um, introverted, shy, more comfortable with animals than people. Yeah, I I relate to that, actually. Um, More than you know. I think animals can often feel safer than humans, you know, non-judgmental, especially when you're young. So I started out my life in the right place, I feel, fascinated with animals and parents that were letting me roam free. I'm one of seven kids, yeah. One of seven. That's a big family. Yes. Penny was the oldest daughter, and when things got tough at home, she ended up taking on more responsibility. My mom was ill, so she was being treated, and she came back home, but she was bedridden, and I was taking care of the kids along with my dad. Um, And she passed away. Penny was in college when her mom died. Um, That must have been hard to to lose your mother at a at a young age. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. She was the giver of unconditional love. Just just amazing. That's who she was. I don't know, you know, I don't want to make associations that aren't there, but is that what you wanted to be for Coco? Yes. I was hoping that I could give her all she needed even though I wasn't a female gorilla, (laughs) who, of course, would have been a better match. I'm Ariel Zumros, and this is a show about animals. Project Coco. So, it's 1972, and the project is underway. We'd get there early in the morning, um, before the zoo opened, and take her for a walk. I think they had a wheelchair at... Uh, at the zoo, and she liked riding in the wheelchair. <laughs> so we were uh, two people, the girl in a wheelchair. That sounds like the start of a joke or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and she would direct us where to go by using a gesture this way or that way. They're at the zoo, right? So there are also these llamas there, and Coco would go visit them. She would walk up close to the llamas and then... Bang! <laughs> They'd all run. And she'd love to see that happen. <laughs> yeah, she liked the power of being able to, these herd of llamas <laughs> running away from her and then coming back and running away. It was a game. This is where Penny and Coco would drive. They would come up from Stanford 
Penny would be driving and Coco would be sitting in the seat like you're sitting in the passenger seat <laughs> and they, they would come down this road to the place where we're going. Dale Jirasi is a private investor and a documentary filmmaker. He's also an old friend of Penny's. Fun fact, Dale's father was the chemist who helped invent the birth control pill. His family owns a ranch in the hills of Woodside, California. He used to hang out there with Coco and Penny, who he knew from Stanford. So, you know, this, is, this is where Coco used to come up from Stanford. Uh, the drive to Dale's ranch was very interesting because the roads are narrow and there's steep drop and Coco wanted to tr- help steer. <laughs> she, we weren't doing a good enough job. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> she thought we were too close to the edge. <laughs> so she's got to try to take the wheel. <laughs> oh, it was funny. We would run around the the feel here and and I would do tickle chase which is point at my armpit and then run and then she would chase me essentially tackle me Coco's life is mostly spent in the trailer on campus where Penny's doing the language experiment with her or outside on a leash but at the ranch Penny turns her loose Coco gets to be free she would run over there and she would get up on these oak trees so it was great it's not a bamboo forest in Central Africa, but it's, you know, wide open and trees. And it was a real sense of Coco being able to experience living in a wide open, wild place. Most of the time, it's just them. But sometimes other students tag along. And at one point, they even throw Coco a birthday party. I don't know if if party seems the word, but more like probably eating and drinking and taking pictures, you know. I'm sure there are some, you know, interesting photographs out somewhere in somebody's collection. But the rest of the time, Coco lives on campus, in that modified trailer, which was honestly pretty small for a gorilla. And Coco needed a lot of supervision. Penny, who has no children, lives with a friend off campus. This is from a 1978 documentary directed by Barbe Schroeder about the Coco Project that Dale worked on while he was a student. It's part of the Criterion Collection. She has to be with Coco in the morning when she wakes up and at night when she goes to sleep. The experiment began five years ago. Penny hasn't had a vacation since. From watching the documentary, it's clear that taking care of Coco is like taking care of a kid. There is feeding and playtime and putting her to bed and cleaning up after her. Who were you to Coco at this point? You know, what was your role in Coco's life? I was mom. You know, mom that that, that did all that she liked me to do and mom who might chastise her if she was doing something destructive. (laughs) Now you march. To your room. Come on. Coco, I mean it. You better go. The kind of mom things that you would normally do to your child. Coco, right this minute. Go. And you know, there's a lot of stuff that I was struck by while watching all this documentary footage of Penny and Coco. But one of the things that really stood out was how much like a parent-child relationship this really was. There are these incredibly sweet moments where Penny is playfully teasing Coco. Finished. You are not finished. You are not. You are not finished. 
<laughs> you didn't do the work, I asked. Please pick those up. Coco, you are very good at that. And then there are these other moments where, honestly, Penny sounds completely exhausted and cranky, short-tempered. You be careful. Look at that. Broken. You're not good now. Come on, you've broken the box, too. Come on, Spank. You get over there. You help clean. It does not hold up well. Coco's grown up with me as her mother, which means that, of course, I'm dominant over her. And I, I do occasionally have to enforce it. At the end of the day, there's work to do. Coco's life isn't all about birthday parties and field trips. She is also the subject of a scientific experiment. One that's about to run into its first major hurdle. Was it hard to learn sign language in order to teach it to this other being? Like, was that a difficult thing? Yeah, it, it took it took me some time, and I was always feeling like I hadn't really mastered it. When Penny started her PhD research project to see if a gorilla could learn American Sign Language, she had really only started learning it herself. I was so busy that I couldn't spend a huge amount of time studying sign language, but for uh, a baby gorilla, there's enough <laughs> that I could master to, to really meet her interests and needs. But pretty soon, Penny starts to pick up on something. Coco seems to have the ability to do far more than just copy the signs that she's teaching her. And then realized that she had already an ability to create signs. I didn't need to teach everything. One day, she's with Coco, practicing signs. And she notices Coco making a sign that has nothing to do with what they're focusing on. Yeah, at first it puzzled me. What is she doing? She realizes Coco is looking at the corner of the room they're in and doing this modified version of the sign for bird, which in official American Sign Language would be forming one hand into a bird beak by putting together your thumb and index finger. But the way Coco signs, she uses both hands. She took her two index fingers and put them to a corner. Coco is pointing that bird sign toward the corner. But obviously there are no birds in the room with them. So Penny's like, Coco, come on, just focus. But Coco keeps making that sign over and over. And then Penny sees it. And I looked closer and there was something there. It's a fly, a common housefly. That's what Coco is pointing to. So she was identifying and indicating that the fly, I think, was like a bird. They, they both could fly. And that was quite early on. She was innovating with signs. Which, big if true. Learning to copy signs is one thing, but if Coco's making these connections between an insect and a bird that they share characteristics and might as a result be called something similar, and if she's then able to make up her own signs, that shows evidence of some complex manipulation of language. Because at this point, other people have tried this kind of experiment. But Penny is reporting a lot more of these kinds of creative moments than her predecessors which means Coco might be demonstrating something a lot more like human language. 
Or at least that's how Penny is interpreting all of this. Because again, there is no agreed upon way to say if any animal has acquired language. This could be a, a, a strong contribution to, to knowledge about um, our ancestry and our relatedness to the other great apes. We'll be right back. Scientists have noticed similarities between humans and other apes for centuries. But for most of that time, they were focused mainly on how we are physically alike. And there's a reason for that. Western scientists started with the idea that animals, non-human ones, were just machines. That they didn't have thoughts or feelings. That they didn't feel pain. It wasn't until the 1800s when the idea of evolution really takes shape. To this day... Very little separates us from the great apes. That people start to consider that the similarities may run a lot deeper. Chimpanzees are like our cousins. We share 98% of our genes. Their behavior reminds us very much of ourselves. And over time, in the last century, the idea that animals are machines, that falls away. Western scientists start to grasp that the way animals experience the world is a lot more like how we experience the world. But language, that's still up for debate. It's sort of the last dividing line between humans and every other animal, a line scientists have been testing for some time. By the early 1900s, a growing number of scientists are studying other great apes, at first mainly chimps. They want to see whether apes can learn to do human things, because the hope is that this might say something about how our minds work. And that's the thing, right? This isn't about studying apes to see what they can do. It's about studying apes to see if they can be like us. While researching this podcast, I got pretty interested in one of the earliest experiments to involve a chimp in language. It started in 1931, and the chimp's name was Gua. Psychologist Winthrop Kellogg brings home a baby chimp with the idea that he and his wife Luella are going to raise her like a little sister to their infant son, Donald. There are these old videos from the experiment. They're silent but still really striking. Donald and Gua in matching shorts and hats, gently walking hand in hand across the lawn. Donald and Gua hugging being pulled in a wagon, being tickled. The Kelloggs want to see if Gua can do things like walk upright, eat at a table, things like that. And she does. She never learns to talk, but she does seem to understand when people talk to her. She follows verbal prompts, like, where is your nose? And instead of Gua learning to speak, it's actually baby Donald who starts copying the chimp sounds Gua makes. And the Kelloggs, as parents, do not want that. So they stopped the experiment after just nine months. Also important to note here that the Kellogg study and some of those that came after had a deeply racist thread running through their research. There was an implicit social Darwinism inquiry that they were looking at. For instance, Winthrop Kellogg concludes in his book that Gua's abilities suggest that, quote, African aboriginals can be civilized by leaving Africa and being in a civilized environment. About a decade later, another experiment takes place. Research psychologist Dr. Keith Hayes and his wife raised a chimp named Vicky 
This one involves a different married couple, Catherine and Keith Hayes. Both of them are psychologists, and they bring home a chimp named Vicky. Again, the idea here is to raise her like a human child. And in this case, they specifically want to see if she can learn to talk. She babbled at first. Later, she was rewarded when she made the right sounds. And they do actually get Vicky to talk. Kind of. Now, who am I? This clip is a little hard to understand without the video, but you can hear her say Papa. Papa. Which is pretty incredible. Can you say what this is? But Vicky can only make these sounds if she uses her hands to push her lips in a certain way. And that is a big discovery for these researchers because they realize something crucial, which is that chimps physically cannot speak. They cannot produce the range of sounds that humans can because their bodies won't allow it. Their larynxes, the way they control their breath, their lips, none of these things work the way they do in humans. Okay, so I'm going to talk about another experiment, and it was run by another goddamn couple. And these people are, like, very important. Because they see what happens with Vicky, and they figure that just because a chimp can't produce the same sounds that we can doesn't mean it can't use language. And that's where sign language first comes in. The names of these two scientists are Beatrix and Alan Gardner. I mentioned them in the previous episode. These are the two psychologists who inspire Penny Patterson. And the chimp's name is Washo. In 1966, the Gardners acquire this chimp, who's still a baby at this point, from the government, and they bring her home. And within a few months, they've got Washo making all kinds of signs. Washo could string quite a number of signs together. Me, eat, time, eat. And she's using those signs in a way that is honestly kind of funny. Washo lived in this trailer, and Washo was not supposed to open up the refrigerator and steal food out of it at night. And suddenly... This is Robert Sapolsky, a primatologist and neurologist at Stanford University. In this clip, he's giving a lecture and narrating an old video of Washo in her trailer. And the trailer is absolutely quiet and empty, and suddenly you see Washo walking across, signing, saying, quiet Washo, quiet Washo, <laughs> and raiding the refrigerator that way. Totally cool stuff. Washo is the first ape to learn to sign. It sort of rocks the world of science, and it makes other psychologists really start to question what's possible. Like, if other beings besides humans can learn a human language, is that really what makes us special? When the gardeners publish their work on Washoe, they also give talks about their findings. At the end of each test, whether she had done well or poorly, Washoe was given a reward of food. Combining words is a very important aspect of language acquisition. And like I said, Penny Patterson sees the gardeners during one of these talks, and that is the inspiration for Project Coco. So fast forward a few years. Penny's sitting with Coco in the trailer at Stanford, teaching her sign language. She's observing the same kind of creative use of language the gardeners saw with Washoe. But she's witnessing way more examples than what the gardeners ever reported. Coco is also learning new words a lot faster and appears to be expressing a distinct personality through the use of language. 
something Penny has pointed to as well as others on the project, was a mischievous side to Coco. That she would, in fact, lie on occasion, especially if she was trying to get out of trouble. Gary Shapiro provided this gem of an anecdote. Coco was 100% toilet trained, and this is a good time to tell the story. Once she made a mistake, and she was a big dump in her room. And I said, Coco, what's that? Who did that? And she said, Mike? <laughs> and I said, no, Mike's not in there. She said, Penny? I said, I highly doubt that Penny would do that. Me, Coco, bad. And then she took a sponge, and she sponged it, and she sponged her butt, and she was really into cleaning. <laughs> yeah, she liked cleaning. And what was interesting about that particular moment was that Coco lied. And Coco demonstrated that she could conceive of things remote in time and space because Mike and Benny were not there. So not only did she lie, she also acknowledged that she was caught in a lie. Yeah, that's right. Coco bad. <laughs> Coco sorry. Coco bad. She would say that to me quite frequently, actually. Another time, Coco eats a potted plant in the trailer, and she blames it on one of her handlers. Like, it wasn't me. It was the other dude. Penny has said that lying was actually of scientific note, that it demonstrated intelligence. As she says in a National Geographic article, when Coco uses language to make a point, to lie her way out of a jam, then she's exploiting language the way we do as human beings, a linguistic, though perhaps not moral, progress. Come on, let's, let's be good. This is your body. Can you say body? Good, but you need two hands to say body. You have a nice body. Mm-hmm. Pretty. Pretty, pretty. Pretty hair. Yes. Meanwhile, as this whole project is happening, Penny and Coco are developing a real bond. When I watch footage from back then, it feels more like I'm watching old home movies of a mother and child spending quality time together. I have to remind myself that this was a research project at a university. But this bond they're developing means going beyond the project's bounds in a way that honestly redefines who Penny is. Because until this point, Penny is a psychology student trying to publish a thesis. But then in 1977, the San Francisco Zoo tells Penny, hey, you know Coco, the subject of your experiment? We need her back. I wondered whether the animal really knew it was a gorilla. The new zoo director says it's for her own good. The right thing to do was to take the animal away out of that project and put it in a family of gorillas. The zoo director was saying, no, we're taking Coco back. Dale Jirasi again. That's our gorilla, and we want our gorilla back. For me, part of my student activism then was don't let them take Coco back to the zoo. There's a whole Save Coco campaign and the dispute gets written up in the San Francisco Chronicle. It's a whole thing. And leading the fight is Penny. We feel that if Coco were returned to the zoo at this point, I think that uh, she might just go into a state of deep depression and perhaps never come out, perhaps not eat, and then lay herself open for infection and die. I mean, it, it doesn't sound very scientific to say this, but I think it is possible for animals uh, such as the gorilla and people to die of broken hearts. Penny even says she's prepared to run away with Coco or live alongside her in the zoo if she has to go back. 
To make her case, Penny argues that Coco has the same rights as a human child. Well, she's in American society, and I see her as an individual, and as an individual, she should be treated in, in, uh, humanely, as a human. The campaign is successful, and eventually the zoo director agrees to allow Penny to buy Coco, which she does using money raised by the campaign, including donations from Stanford and Dale Jirossi's very rich family. And this is the moment when Project Coco officially goes from being a graduate research project at Stanford to a lifetime commitment. The sale of Coco to Penny has to run through an organization, so Penny formed the Gorilla Foundation, which is still around today. Its mission is to, quote, apply interspecies communication to save gorillas from extinction. So, as part of the deal, Penny needs to acquire another gorilla. She's put in touch with an animal dealer in Vienna who sells two infant gorillas to the foundation for $28,000. Given the circumstances at the time, and Penny writes this in her own book, it's assumed these animals were taken from the wild, meaning they were poached. Since they're quite young, it's also assumed that they were taken from their mother, who would have been killed in the process. This didn't go unnoticed at the time. We found an old newsletter from the International Primate Protection League, which detailed the circumstances of the purchase and mentions that the dealer in question had a history of animal trafficking. The newsletter also explains that sadly, the two infants were quite ill when they arrived in California. And the female of the pair, she didn't make it. But the young male did, and he joined Coco at Stanford. There is a newcomer in Coco's life. Michael, a young gorilla of four. His name is Michael, and his first introductions with Coco aren't exactly easy. Penny writes in her book that Coco is jealous and that she ends up bullying him. Coco? Coco! Coco. She's biting. No. No mouth. No biting. That's hey, listen to me. Coco, what are you doing to Mikey? This is apparently not what Penny wants to see. Michael is this younger, smaller male gorilla. So Penny lectures Coco. She seems to think that Coco should be more gentle, more welcoming. We hope to continue the study throughout Coco's lifetime and Michael's lifetime so that we can establish a group or a family of communicating gorillas. It's interesting to hear Penny say that because multiple people told me that Michael was not a priority as a research subject. That he learned some signs and he loved finger painting and was very sweet and liked being around people, but that he wasn't the focus of Penny's research. Penny's focus is still on Coco's use of sign language. She's continuing to gather data and teach Coco new signs, but as her work becomes more prominent, Penny also gains some doubters. We were documenting it clearly so that the people who were questioning it could see that there it is. Much of what the Ape Language Projects did was scare people that we were way too much like them 
So various reasons for people to take a position that this is not what we should be doing, but did not register with me. (laughs) I just kept going. For Penny, all that matters is Coco. You never had any doubts. You always felt confident that you, that Coco was understanding you. You were understanding her, and there was definitely having there was definitely a dialogue there. Yeah, I mean, it just was natural. It felt like normal. <laughs> After a while, though, the critiques of her work start to impact the experiment. When you were there, did you see Penny sign with Coco? I saw Penny move her hands. Next time on a show about animals, we hear from the ambitious scientist who sets up his own very bizarre experiment and then calls bullshit on Penny Patterson, threatening to destroy the entire field of ape language research in the process. How does it make you feel when you hear that people are still to this day saying that you killed this field? Um, It happens all the time in science. There are experiments that don't work, and it's foolish to to go ahead and pursue them. The show about animals is a production of Vice News, and it's hosted and reported by me, Ariel Zumros. Our producers are Julian Nutter and Pete Lang-Stanton. Our production assistant is Lely Rizvani. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandy, with additional support from Steve Bone. Annie Aviles is our executive editor. Kate Osborne is our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson for fact-checking. If you liked what you hear, please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. A show about animals gets released every week on Wednesdays, so be sure to check back in next week. 